You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks, and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. Hey friends, bonus alert. Bonus. Um, This is a bonus episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. It's like that extra fry you find in the bottom of your McDonald's Mm. bag Mm -hmm. a week later, but it still tastes pretty much the same. Or... Uh, maybe not a McDonald's fry because I don't I don't find them. I haven't had one in a really really long. When time. When they got rid of the animal lard, I I got off the uh, McDonald's yeah, train. Yeah, I only eat foods that are going to kill me the quickest. Yeah, although there's <laughs> some debate. I listened to a whole podcast about whether that was actually healthier or not. And uh, really, the, the yeah, it it turns out it wasn't healthier. Well, <laughs> yeah, Tur- turns out animal lard is uh, actually it's probably fine. <laughs> oh really? It's it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I it's heard that all, canola the, oil is like awful. For right. You. Yeah, yeah. You boil that stuff, and it's like injecting cancer into your yep, brain. Yeah, it's. Uh, we don't have. I, I remember reading about this. We don't have a food culture, which is why we're so susceptible to all mm. these like scientific, like the latest research, and like we don't have a like Italy has a food culture where they're yeah. like, this is what you eat. Don't do vegetables stupid things. and olive oil and pasta. I That's told what you, you eat. I told you about my buddy. Who's that? That, that had uh, major gluten intolerance. Yeah. Really, really bad gluten oh, right. intolerance. Right. And he was traveling to Italy right. with his family. Yeah. And he and they were was like, nope. talking to his doctor about, okay, what do I do? And mm-hmm. he's like, oh, you'll be fine. Right. And he ate, he ate gluten the entire time he was there and nothing, no yeah. problems. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And he, yeah. So now, and we've got a little Italian eatery down the street yeah. from us. Little little place they make pizzas. What's it and, called? Passe uh, Pione? Passiona Pane. Passiona Pane. Passiona Pane. Gravity Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Passione Pane. Yeah, we are blurbing it. It's it's a wonderful bread, and right. I think they, they make do... bread from Italian wheat. Yeah, they, like bring, le- they import the flour from Italy. And your wife, she's got Who's major. Got, yeah, she's got gluten sensitivity, and she has no trouble at all with their bread. All right, isn't that crazy? Let's all move to Italy. 
Speaking Ooh. of sustainable like food habits. Oh hey, there's a good good transition. This I was bo- like, what? Let's bring this back. <laughs> this bonus what are we episode about? brought to you by Passione Pane yeah. is uh, with um, Bri- uh, Sylvia Keysmott and her husband, <laughs> Bri- Brian Walsh. <laughs> Brian Walsh. Yes. They've written a fascinating new anti-commentary, uncommentary. Uncommentary. I think that's what they call on it. Uh, yeah. on the Book of Romans because um, little known fact. It's been mm. mostly ignored in Christian history, the Book of Romans. <laughs> right. <laughs> Most of you probably haven't even heard of it. It's right in your Bible after Genesis. It's bef- a letter that Paul... Before no. Titus. And uh, yeah, it's an amazing sort of... You know, it's, it's really kind of a midrash. So it's like a modern... Mm. Yeah. It's a modern Gentile midrash on the Book of Romans. And it's a fascinating read cover to cover. Uh, maybe if you are looking to preach... If you're looking to preach on Romans, it's not like your typical commentary yeah. where it goes yeah. it goes verse by verse. Mm-hmm. But it's it's fascinating. They link their they live on a sustainable farm in Canada and they both teach. They're both college professors, brilliant, wonderful people. And they also uh serve at a church, an inner city church mm-hmm. that um and they talk about their church in the first forty pages of the book. It's a story, amazing story. So anyway, yeah. it's an it's a out of the ordinary conversation for us because it's fairly what would you say, academic? It's fairly nerdy. Yeah, it's pretty nerdy. Yeah, so, yeah, if you're into nerds... Nerdy stuff. You're in the right place. Yeah, yeah, listen to this. Bo- and I mean, that's I'm why saying we, we nerded out, not that Brian and Sylvia nerded out. Oh, no, no, yeah, yeah. We uh, nerd, out. yeah. I for I have to remember that some people still think nerd is a pejorative term, uh, but for me, it's not a pejorative term we at kids. all. I know. You didn't want to be a nerd. No. You wanted to be a jock. Now you want to be a nerd, because uh, nerds run the world. They do run the world. Right? Yeah. Sometimes badly. Reminds me of that video of uh, the Microsoft... Uh, 95 release where they're mm. where the the guys are dancing on the stage mm. and have you seen that oh yeah yeah <laughs> they're like dancing to celebrate good times come on or something yeah cool in the gang anyway speaking also, of speaking also of, reminds me of steve ballmer uh, <laughs> stuff that i've seen have you do you remember him he was the ceo maybe of microsoft for a little while oh yeah and du- dude was just a rageaholic oh was he yeah there's some classic bits from him where he was just like he could not believe anybody would want an iphone he tried to just run that thing into the ground. Really? He was like, yeah. I missed that train. Oh, man. Just look look him up. Steve Ballmer. He's got several episodes where he just loses his mind. Kind of like Borders publicly. deciding they didn't want to get into the online yeah. book fulfilling yeah, right. order industry yeah, yeah. and it's giving their entire mailing list to big Amazon. Big mistakes made. <laughs> big mistakes were made. Um, so, yeah. So, you're going to enjoy this if you're like us and you like to nerd out. Yeah. We also want you to know that there's a pretty big thing happening a webinar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Should we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. The webinar, uh, the Enneagram webinar. Yeah, do's and don'ts with the webinar. How to use the Enneagram as a Christian. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yep. But Matt and I are doing a free webinar uh, if you are a Christian. Yes. And you are interested in the Enneagram, or even if you've looked at it and you've thought, I don't know, that this thing looks, looks a little, yeah, it looks like a pentagram or something. Maybe, yeah, if you're if you're accumulating a dossier of things to accuse us of heresy, this would be the thing this to This would come be a to. great one to come to, and it's free. Or if you're a, <laughs> if you're a druid, considering Christianity, <laughs> perhaps, you know, our druid listenership has spiked in the last... It has nowhere to go but up. Yeah. So anyway, uh, it, it is. It's, I think it's titled, uh, what do we title it? It was How to Use the Enneagram as a Christian... Do's and don'ts. Right. And so it's an hour webinar. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Let's, We've been using the Enneagram for spiritual formation for yes. many years. Yes. Not conflating it, it with the gospel. Don't worry. No. Yeah. Well, that's part of that's part of the webinar. How is it different from the gospel? You know, et cetera, et cetera. It's, and the date for that, Ben? October. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Just 
Come just show up on the internet Come at on. some point. No, it's October 7th, mm-hmm. Monday, mm-hmm. Uh, at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Yes. So. Some PMEs Eastern, and we'll have a link in the show notes. We'll have a link in the show notes. Or you can go to your favorite chat room and ask around. Somebody will point you in yep. the right direction. Yep. <laughs> on the internet, if you go to the internet. <laughs> log uh, on to AOL. A Romans Disarmed, Resisting Empire, Demanding, demanding justice. justice by Kiesmont and Walsh. Enjoy. Hey, this is the Gravity Leadership Podcast. You found us again where you always do, or maybe this is your first time listening. If so, welcome. I am Matt, one of the co-hosts, co-founders of Gravity Leadership. I'm joined by our um, trusty co-founders. You guys are, I trust you guys, you know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's because we're trusty. You are trusty and yep. trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ben Sternke, Ben Hardman, join me. Yep. Good um, to see you guys. And Today, we are joined by uh, Sylvia Kismet and Brian Walsh from Canada. Am I right? That's yes. Right. Now, Canada is a huge place. So, where exactly <laughs> in Canada? We are in, uh, we're, we're kind of in what's known as central Ontario. So, about two and a half hours, two hours northeast of Toronto. Okay. Okay. So, that, fantastic. The, the area is called the Kawartha Lakes. And uh, it's kind of known as cottage country. So there's a lot of lakes and a lot of countryside. Okay, well, countryside sounds like northern Minnesota. (laughs) Yes, very much. I grew up in Minnesota, and you know, northern Minnesota is where you go to go on vacation, you go fishing, that kind of thing. Sounds nice. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so cottage lake country. What what do you spend your time doing up there in Ontario? Well, uh, at home, we live on a 50-acre permaculture farm. So at this time of year, in the summer, we have interns on our farm who come to learn about uh, sustainable living and resilient farming and how to preserve your own food and the theological underpinnings of all of that. Mm -hmm. I also teach uh, a lot of lay education courses in Anglican churches around, and I teach part-time at the University of Toronto hmm. as well. So I'm a professor by training. Yeah. So to give you a sense of what's happening as we speak is the interns are downstairs making blackcurrant jam. Oh. So we, just, <laughs> we just harvested our blackcurrants. That's right. Oh, that's awesome. That's now fun. in the winter, in the winter, Brian is in Toronto uh, as a campus minister, and he also teaches at the University of Toronto. And um, so the winter, our life has a shift between here and Toronto. We hmm. we have a f- grounded in two communities in the winter. Yeah. Okay, so you are professors and perma, perma- permaculture, permaculture farmers. sustainable farmers. That's right. Um, which sounds like you have plenty of leisure time. Oh. And, <laughs> well, the interns are making the jam. jam, so yeah. The interns help right. with uh, podcasting uh, margin. Um, also, you ha- are part of a faith community there, yeah? We're, we're part of a faith community uh, both here in uh, the Kawarthas. Uh, we, are, we are part of a, an Anglican church in a small town. Uh, and I am the pastor of a community at the University of Toronto, uh, called wine before breakfast. So that's a community that, uh, <laughs> wine, yeah, bef- well, did you say what, wine what before breakfast, wine before breakfast. What oh, else man. would you expect from a glutton and a drunkard? <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
That's a pretty good subtitle. I, li- I like it. I like it. <laughs> there you are. That's great. That's great. And you're, you've written this book. We wanted to chat with you about it um, called Romans Disarmed, Resisting Empire, Demanding Justice. I mm-hmm. made the mistake of referring, which I officially recant of before we hit record, of calling it a commentary. Mm. Uh, and Brian, I think it was Brian or Sylvia said it's an anti-commentary on the book of Romans. Why? So we, you know, uh, <laughs> there's certain books in the Bible that perhaps could use another commentary, you know, second Chronicles, maybe, I don't know if I've ever read one of them on that, <laughs> but then there's certain books, uh, on the Bible that perhaps we have enough commentaries on, uh, and maybe Romans is one of those. Why, why did you decide what was, what compelled you to write this? anti-commentary on the book of Romans. And what do you mean by uh, that? Yeah. yeah well, uh, what got, got me going on this is basically boredom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was bored with uh, the commentaries. I was bored with the ongoing, never-ending debates uh, around Romans. Uh, uh, and, and what was getting really scary was maybe I was getting bored of Romans because the only way I could read this thing was, was through the traditional kinds of debates. And it seemed that it was time to take a fresh look. If this, if this is such uh, an important book, then maybe the way in which Romans has been commentaried to death and has been used to in fact cause death because it's been used as a weapon, uh, maybe we needed to do something different and uh, and start looking at it from a very different perspective. And writing a verse-by-verse commentary uh, just seemed to be the wrong way to go about it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, and a lot of commentaries, you know, just rehash a lot of the same old theological questions, right? So, you know, what's atonement about? And what do we mean by the righteousness of God kind of narrowly defined? And um, we wanted to take a fresh look at all those questions. What if we didn't start with any assumptions about even what righteousness meant or all these kind of catchphrases that we use, Christianese that we use that we think we know what they mean, but we haven't actually bothered to think about what these words would have meant for people in the first century. Yeah. So that kind of a fresh start. And we wanted to also root Romans in the narrative context in which people would have heard it. Yes. So commentaries are often verse by verse by verse, whereas Romans, Paul was writing out of, th- well, in the context of three stories, the story of Judaism, which informed everything he did, the story of Jesus, which had transformed that story of Judaism, and the story of his culture, imperial Rome, and the story of Jesus also transformed that culture. Hmm. So what if you read this book not as all these little tiny minute arguments, but as a large grand narrative that was rooted in these other large grand narratives? Then, then what would it convey to people because stories convey something very different than okay now this verse means da 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 and these little nitpicky linguistic things and and maybe I just add to that there's there's the, those three stories the sto- grand story of Israel the story of Jesus and the story of the empire there's also a very small story the story of the uh, 
gathered uh, followers of Jesus at the heart of the empire and what's going on in their little story and how's Paul speaking into that. But then uh, you also, and this is a major problem with commentaries, commentaries think that once they've done their exegetical work, then you're done. And, you know, in my, in my relationship, my friend Tom Wright, I've always pushed Tom saying, yeah, but so what? So what? What, what does this mean? And he's, he's always been a little resistant to, to uh, unpack that. But it seems to me that the interpretive process isn't done until we've engaged our own story. And while evangelicals will do that in terms of my personal pious story, we also want to do that within the broader context of the, the story of our own imperial context, our own uh, overarching narrative. So what happens to those five stories all get interrelated to, with each other? Well, you don't do that in a commentary. Yeah, yeah. And so this is the work you do in this book, Romans Disarmed, and it's uh, mind-boggling, profoundly interesting. And I, it feels like I, I need to have a, a reading group to discuss it with. Uh, <laughs> one of the things you do in the first uh, 100 pages is you, you sort of just focus on the social setting of Rome and the kinds of conflicts and problems and stories that incited or provoked Paul to write this letter. And you use some stories from your community and you use some fictional stories from the Church of Rome, sort of these archetypal people that Paul would have written to. Can you just share a bit about that? Why, why did you start the book like that? And why is that so crucial? Well, we started the book like that because we were trying to discern how right at the outset, uh, the various people in the house churches in Rome would have heard of the letter because they wouldn't have read it. They would have heard it read by Phoebe and they would have, they would have then talked about it together. Right. And um, so when you said you, you want to read this book in a reading group, uh, that that's the best way to read anything. And that's how Paul's letters were originally heard. Nobody read it by themselves and then mm. sort of tried to figure it out on their own. It was always read aloud in a context. And then the person who carried the letter, probably Phoebe, um, would have helped them understand what it meant. But we also wanted to delve into how different people would have heard it in the community. Because just like now, yeah. people hear different things when a text is read. Um, different people would have heard it with different kinds of overtones. Um, different things would have resonated. So we create two characters, uh, Iris, who is a Gentile slave woman, um, who had been captured, her childhood was free, and uh, a Jewish man, Nereus, who is named actually in Romans chapter 16, and um, Nereus, uh, his father and grandmother had been slaves, and he's freed, but he lives kind of a very precarious existence. So hmm. right away, somebody who is Gentile would hear something very different from somebody who's Jewish when they read Romans, right? Uh, they would have heard different overtones. So Romans 1, verses 1 to 16. Um, a slave woman hearing Paul describe himself as a slave of Jesus Christ, well, that, that would have, you know, that, that could have offended her. She could have thought, well, would he know about being a slave, this guy? Uh, how dare he use that language? Um, you know, for, for Nereus, that could have been, that could have been the, point at which he realized that Paul is actually identifying with those at the bottom of the social ladder. So different different responses could have come about because of that. And just the language Paul uses at the beginning, he talks about the gospel. 
um, and using the word gospel in ancient Rome, this wasn't, you know, we think of the gospel and we think of Jesus and the four gospels, but a first century Jew would have heard uh, Isaiah's language of good news because the word in Greek, euangelion, gospel, is the word good news. It meant good news. So Nereus would have heard Isaiah's promise of good news. And what was mm. the good news in Isaiah? But that God is coming to defeat uh, our Gentile enemies who have mm. um, triumphed over us, right? In Rome, however, the word gospel meant Caesar's good news, Caesar's victory. That was always good news about victories. And that good news was tied up with uh, parades where slaves were marched through the streets. So for Iris, a slave woman, hearing the word gospel, that's not good news ever for her. She, that's the context in which she was captured. And so right away at the outset, Paul, when he uses the word gospel in the first, the first three times he uses it, he qualifies it gospel of God's son, the gospel of God. And then um, he's always making it clear, this is a different gospel. This is different good news that challenges the good news of Rome. Um, Same with the word salvation. Uh, Caesar was known as the soter, the savior Mm -hmm. of the empire. So to say that Jesus is a savior or that God brings salvation, again, that's a challenge to that dominant cultural narrative. And it also still has Old Testament roots. Right? Uh, again, in, in Isaiah. And the most striking word uh, that we, we actually translate differently is the word dikaiosune, which is translated righteousness throughout Romans, um, but which in the Greek is actually a translation of two Hebrew words, mishpat and tzedakah. Tzedakah is righteousness in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Bible, and mishpat is justice. So both of those meanings, justice and righteousness, come together in that word, dikaiosune. Uh, so if you read Romans and every time you see the word righteousness, you put the word justice in there, you get a very different flavor to the letter. This works for the whole New Testament, by the way. It right. really makes a huge difference in, in reading. And, and of course, we don't use the word righteousness in daily speech, right, except to say that somebody is self-righteous perhaps, or if you listen to Ani DeFranco to talk about Righteous Babe records. But really, <laughs> yeah, justice is a word we use. Yeah. We know we know what that, that means. Um, and so Rome was also known for its justice, for bringing justice to the whole of the barbarian world. So to talk about God's righteousness, God's justice, and to reinterpret that in light of Jesus was a very powerful challenge to the dominant cultural narrative. And, and it's kind of interesting if you look at uh, Spanish translations of the New Testament, uh, the word dikaiosune is always translated justicia. It's justice. always translated mm. justice. Yeah. Uh, so there's something about our reading and uh, that uh, has certain resonances uh, with liberation theology. It's, mm-hmm. it's not surprising Latin American liberation theology picked up on the language of justice is actually in their very translation of the Bible. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this gets at what you were saying earlier about your boredom, Brian, with Romans. We've got all these abstract theological concepts yeah. that we see in Romans. Gospel. Mm. We turn slavery into a spiritualized thing, yep. don't we? Uh, yep. We turn r- righteousness. I don't know any person who knows what righteousness is outside <laughs> of some sort of reformed dogmatics you know what I mean? As some sort of ordo salutis. So there's this sense in which all this stuff is abstract theological language. And what you do in your anti-commentary, if we can call it that, is bring it into the ecological, 
economic and relational fabric of everyday life. Mm-hmm. This is this is this is the language. This is the pop culture and the and the religious culture of our day. And Paul is intentionally using that language and subverting and trading off of it to construct a new imagination, which is mm-hmm. which doesn't bore you at all. <laughs> like that, mm. that that reinvigorates this letter that we think we know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm, It's so good. So, so then our problem is maybe uh, as Christians and we're from, uh, we're from the States and maybe we can talk about Western Christianity Mm. and get ourselves into a lot of trouble, but maybe have a little bit of help here as we talk about Western, mostly white Christianity. Um, We read the book of Romans and we impulsively identify with either the Jews or the Gentiles. Mm Mm-hmm that Paul's writing to, but mm-hmm. in your commentary, you make, uh, it's an almost a pl- implicit assertion that, uh, that maybe us Western Christians should consider ourselves more as the Rome of today. Mm. Um, and if we read it as, as with a, with a, who's being critiqued rather than who's being encouraged, it may bring some new meaning to us. Can you, can you yeah. maybe give us an apologetic or am, am I right? First of all, is that implied? And secondly, why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I, I think it, it is, it, it is implied. Um, <laughs> maybe we decided to do that because all scripture is inspired by God and useful for correction and reproof. <laughs> right. Yes. And mm-hmm. if, if, if our reading of scripture is never correcting or reproving us, uh, but is always simply confirming what we already believed and confirming the way in which we already live, then that's a surefire indication we're misreading the scriptures. Mm. Right? So, so th- there's, there's got to be something uh, more radical going on here uh, in, in Paul. And, and, and while on one level we may identify with the Jew or, or, or the Greek, um, it seems to us that where we really should be identifying ourselves is with the weak, or the powerless. That the, the, it, it is the powerless, I think, that have the privilege uh, in, in, in Romans. Just let me, so when you say we should be identifying ourselves, you, what you mean by that is not that we are the weak no, or the powerless, right. but that the, the people we should be thinking about uh, as the addressees of this letter, who we should mm. be walking with. Yep, is that, that what you that's, mean? That, that's, this is the way our, we, we wrote this book. <laughs> I would say something. Sylvia would correct it, and I'd say, yeah, that's what I meant all along. That's what right? I meant the whole time. Yeah, that's, that's what I was talking about. That's right. Uh, so, so one of the questions when, when you come to you know something like Romans is, well, what, what's my way in? What, what am I looking for as, as I'm reading this thing? And, and, and for, for almost ever, it seems, what we've been looking for is, is Paul's systematic theology. Yeah, and uh, and it seems very clear to us that Paul wasn't writing a systematic theology. He was writing a letter, and and it wasn't that Paul thought at a certain point, you know, it's really time for me to figure out this whole Christianity thing, and I'm just going to bang out my systematic theology. And who will I send it to? Well, I'll send it to the folks of Rome because they'll probably want to know about this because I want to go there, etc. <laughs> um, and 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 we're thinking, no, that that's that's not what Paul was about. Paul's writing a letter, and who's he writing to? He's writing to uh, a divided community, and those divisions uh, can go along various kinds of lines, but he's writing to a community that is in struggle 
and that is in a place of danger and persecution. They are a minority. They are a marginalized community. That's why our two characters, Iris and Nereus, are both folks at the bottom end of the social and economic order. Now, why would we think that Paul is writing to people at the bottom end? Because most people were at the bottom end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, he, and the names, a lot of the names in Romans 16 are have slave, are slave names or are the names of slave families. Mm-hmm. Um, so they might have been freed people, but they, uh, but they had slave antecedents. So, you know, it, it's... It starts with a few people who were probably a little higher up in the social ladder, Prisca and Aquila. Um, but by the time you get to all those names at the bottom of Romans 16, this is this is not these are not people of high status at all. Yeah. yeah. So so if he's if he's writing uh, to a community that is marginalized within the empire, then we need to ask ourselves, well, what what right do we who are at the center of the empire, who are a couple of uh, white uh, professionals? Uh, what access do we have to this this book? It's 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 almost it's not ours, hmm. and uh, and so so then we begin to to reflect upon um, who must we walk alongside of if we are to hear uh, what Paul is saying. So so where the book begins is uh, actually with the story of our friend Greg Spoon Iggy, hmm. and uh, and Iggy was a, an indigenous man. Uh, had experienced incredible oppression. He, he was part of the 60s scoop in Canada where children were taken from their families and, and adopted into to other families um, wow. and uh, was, was a deeply, deeply broken man. And, uh, and yet Iggy had transformation in his life and became recognized amongst many of us as, as an elder and as a leader. Uh, and, and so we tell the story of, of Iggy's death, but then we tell the story of, the, of a party two months later and Iggy's friend, Frenchie, uh, sitting at the side of the dance floor, weeping and weeping. And, and somehow it seems to us that if, if, uh, if we can perhaps try as, as inadequately as, as inevitably we would, we would be, we can try to uh, enter into this epistle with the grief of Iggy's death uh, and the grief of that dance floor that night. Um, then, then maybe that might open things to us. And, and we actually mm. would even go further and say that there is um, a hermeneutical privilege to grief. The suffering actually is a is a privileged place into the heart of Scripture, because it's a privileged place into the very heart of God. Hmm. Now, I just want to tell you a little bit more of the story. We launched the book uh, uh, about two months ago at that same place with that same dance floor. Hmm. And uh, and we began with telling the story of Iggy and and the house band at that community sanctuary played a song that they had written for Iggy called Iggy's Song. It's, and if you read the book, it's in the first chapter and it's, it's a devastating song. It was the second time they ever played it. They played it that first night when Frenchie fell into to tears mm. and they played it for us. And they've said they'll never play it again uh, oh. because it tells the story of indigenous people's but it's, 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 it, this isn't abstract for us. This is personal. Iggy was our friend. Um, we had a great book launch that night. 
we ended with uh, playing the most sacred of all popular songs, Mustang Sally. <laughs> and, and we all danced, danced to Mustang Sally. I jumped on stage and did backup vocals. And it was this great evening. Mm. Mm. Two, two hours later, a man was murdered about 100 feet from Sanctuary. And when I heard the news, I said, I, I, I pray, please, God, not somebody, not somebody else from Sanctuary. Mm. It was James Smith. James was Iggy's best friend. Oh. So Sorrel, um, the book is born in Sorrel, and yeah. it still bears that Sorrel. Yeah. And as a result, we realized that the book is actually... Romans is a book of lament. Uh, you know, when Paul turns from the that glorious description of the gospel into the talking about God's wrath, um, whenever in the prophets you have the prophets talking about God's judgment, the Godward side of that judgment is always grief, right? God's judgment always comes out of God's grief over the hopes that God had for people and the way those hopes weren't met. And so when Paul is talking about uh, at the beginning of the book, the fact that, you know, even though we're all faithless, God remains faithful. Even though when we were enemies, God loved us. Um, Even though uh, God made all these promises and we just didn't manage (laughs) to figure out uh, that they were our promises. Um, all of that is the context of profound sorrow for God and for Paul too. And, and that's why it's no surprise when in chapter eight, Paul talks about creation groaning and those who have the first fruits of the spirit groaning. And then the spirits herself groaning, uh, it's all the same language. Um, it's no surprise to find out that the spirit of God is groaning because God groaning in grief and lament because God has been in lament and grief throughout the whole of the prophetic literature throughout this story. Jesus, of course, mm. um, you know, uh, carries that grief to the cross. And um, so when Paul then in chapter nine begins this chapter nine through 11, this, he begins by talking about his unceasing anguish. Uh, that's no surprise either. He has yeah. a personal grief yes. that's rooted in God's larger grief yeah. over over our unfaithfulness. Mm. And we think that's actually really important for understanding this letter. Hmm. Yeah. 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 So, so your own experience of sorrow and grief allowed you maybe a window into seeing, seeing perhaps what was in this letter the whole time that, (laughs) that we Mm. couldn't see before. (laughs) Um, And I'm, I'm struck by probably one of the reasons for that. I don't know what it's like in Canada, but here in the states, we're not very good at this lament <laughs> thing, the the grieving, the the sorrow. We we we're allergic to it, um, mm-hmm. big time. Like we're 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 avoiding feeling those things, you know. With uh, mm-hmm. I mean, with all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff, you know what I mean. Like the it's almost crisis. it's almost equated. Yeah, it's almost equated with a spiritual deprivation. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a enemy of healthy spirituality. Yeah. rather than a, a portal into it. Right. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, ever since I, I was converted when I was 16, and, and one of the immediate crises I had as a young convert was uh, this evangelical joy that was everywhere. 
and and it seems to me at a certain point like are you guys really that happy all the time <laughs> or are you putting this on because the world really seems like an awful place and yeah. my life is, is is broken in all kinds of ways mm. and so uh you know, rejoice in the lord always but weep with those who weep seems mm-hmm. to be pretty important yeah and i think part of the problem with um the American, sorry, the the narrative of the United States is it is a narrative of salvation, right? Uh, You know, the state as this city on a hill that's going to save the rest of the world. And so if that's your dominant narrative, uh, you you are the people who bring the positive, right? Mm. The joy. You can't can't allow brokenness and lament that. And that's kind of identified itself with evangelical Christianity. Yes or vice versa yes. in the U.S., I think. And that's um, yeah. that's part of it. Because it's not a narrative of salvation through death and resurrection. It's, no. It's <laughs> salvation through, you know, dominance. It's salvation mm-hmm. through, I don't know what else, positive thinking. Economic progress. Economic progress, wealth. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not death and resurrection, which, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we have to have a theology to embrace sorrow and lament like that, I think we have to have a theology of resurrection mm-hmm. to know this mm-hmm. isn't the end. You know, I won't cry forever. <laughs> like that, God will yeah. bring something yeah. good from this. But I, but I need yeah. to enter into this death for this salvation to come. Well, and that's partly because of the the there is a section of the biblical narrative that that story is rooted in and that that part of the story is the conquest narratives in the Exodus story. Yeah. Right? So uh you know if you look at US theology and talking about uh being a light set on a hill it's also tied in with they're the people who come into the land, conquer the native peoples of the land, uh For wipe them out good. and be the yes. faithful yeah, yeah, yep. for their own good. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's a very tiny, tiny part of the story that forgets where the Exodus narrative began. Yes. Um, and then, and, and then it also forgets that, you know, what happens when Israel became um, this country that was imperial under Solomon, right? right. That, that Solomon is seen as a good guy in this story, not as the beginning of the end with all his wealth and his wives and his arms, all of which were forbidden actually in, yes. in Deuteronomy. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you trace themes like lament. Uh, you have uh, the theme of home uh, as well as a, as a large sort of meta meta theme that Paul is trafficking in. And then within that, you know, one of the ways to describe the problem that Romans is seeking to solve is this stratification of relationships the, the economic or honor shame, perhaps, patron-client sort of dynamics in the Roman society. And so you've got then Paul saying, okay, so let's, let's, apply, let's apply the first 11 chapters and let's spend two chapters talking about how to eat together mm-hmm. uh, and how that's such an important thing to him. And as I read that, as I even read that, I thought, okay, so there are honor-shame dynamics in the West. They aren't as strong as they are in the East or even in Paul's day. Um, but can you maybe help us understand like, what are the what are, what is the dynamic in Western culture for affluent persons that and in or affluent persons in with poor persons who uh, that that has the same kind of gospel necessity gospel crucialness as like table fellowship did to Paul? Well, we certainly start by by talking about uh, whether an honor shame structure still is functioning in our own culture. 
and uh, it, you only have to ask any indigenous person about whether there's an honor shame structure in our in our culture, right? Mm. They, they are they are seen as as they are shamed. Oh, or or black or, somebody who's black in in sure. the states, and and uh, or, or somebody uh, who, who's Hispanic uh, who wants to come into the United States through through the the Texan border, or folks within the LGBTQ uh, community. Sure. Uh, so we've got all kinds of shame being thrown around, uh, all, all based upon certain understandings as, as to to what orderly um, and, uh, and and moral life looks like. But but what if love trumps all that stuff? Uh, sorry, I hate using that metaphor anymore <laughs> uh, to trump something. Um, but uh, it seems you know, apt, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> What 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 if uh, what if it, in fact uh, those who are uh, seen to be the most shamed uh, shameful uh, are in fact elevated to being the core of the community, mm. uh, and and that seems to us to be exactly what Paul is doing, and exactly what the community sanctuary, which we dedicate the book to, is all about. Is mm. is is it those who are most marginalized are the core of the community. The community is all about them. Hmm. Uh, and so, so it seems, seems to us that, that we have those dynamics still very much uh, alive in our culture. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is what a lot of the pushback back that's happening in the States is, is about, right. Uh, people are pushing back to that shaming of refugees and, and immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, people are, are pushing back against the continual unrelenting uh, racism that permeates the police forces and the judiciary. Um, just, you know, looking at recent verdicts and mm-hmm. realizing Man, yeah, I almost said something I probably shouldn't have said on the radio. Uh, you know, really, really, there's going to be no convictions here, uh, not you know, or no indictments here. Um, you know, I think I think people in the the Christian community and the larger culture in the states are saying we're not going to let this kind of shaming continue, um, and yet it has such a firm foothold that uh, yeah. it's very difficult to to change the systems and the structures because it's deeply embedded systemically yes in, in how things work and, and and Brian mentioned indigenous people and uh, people of color and um, uh, Latinx people uh, but there's also disabled people right there's you know yeah. if you're disabled in our culture you don't get treated um, in public contexts well because yeah. there's an assumption that you, you you're just you're, you're not worthy right yeah so yeah and, and you know and the big the big thing happening in canada recently has been the lgbtq community and and various church synods <laughs> and the Anglican church synod so there's been you know there are all these contexts in which uh we can be thinking about who are the people that that in our communities we don't want sitting next to our kids that's 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 the question yes and and it's not just a question of ethics and morality but for paul it's a question of the gospel like yes it's it's not an implication of the gospel it's not sort of how we behave once we become good christians it's it's there's a he's beside himself losing himself telling people they should cut off their genitals mad when when people don't deal with issues of justice like you're describing because they are central to the gospel 
And you, your book helps us see this. I like that distinction. <laughs> your book helps us see this because it takes the religious language that we're just used to putting on uh, in theological tomes and it brings it down into everyday nitty-gritty Roman life. So we see that like Paul is just using common everyday language to scandalize the social order with the justice of God and Jesus. So, and, and what yeah. he's, well, what he's saying is this isn't about what you believe, right? Um, even though we use Romans for that, if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. It, it's actually um, the whole letter is if you believe this, um, if you confess this, you will see it in your lives. And if you don't, if this isn't evident, in people's interactions with the most marginalized, in your economic interactions, in your political interactions, then maybe you don't actually believe it. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's right. it's a wave, and whether it's the story of Jesus or not. So, so much for the James-Paul dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Paul, yeah. Paul and James are talking language. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's excellent. And, and, and it's all... It's all about making home, right? The, the, the whole shaming thing is all a matter of who, who is excluded, who is not part of, of, of the community. Yeah. And what Paul does is he redefines it all in familial uh, language. We are all brothers, sisters. We are all siblings in Christ. We are all welcomed into a home. We all have the same home narrative of Abraham and Adam. We all screw up in, in the household and we're equal in our screw ups. We're all uh, welcomed in. We're all adopted back in. We're called to a certain kind of life together because it's a home making life. And not surprisingly, where, where does conflict often happen in the home? Usually at the table, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at the table. So, so what, what, how do we come to the table together to demonstrate that we are family and to welcome all home, right? Yes. So, so if, if you take the, the lens of homemaking in the context of a home-destroying empire, which purports to be the home of all homes, the home of the brave, shall we say, mm. um, if, if in fact what, what Paul is doing is he's saying, we have an other home here in the midst of a home-destroying, domicidal kind of an empire. We are making home together. And his whole uh, epistle being driven towards facilitating such homemaking. Well, all of a sudden, this, this letter takes on not only new meaning in its first century context, but it has all kinds of resonances into a 21st century context. And my hunch is, and from what I've seen so far, and it was the same thing with Colossians Remix, a lot of folks will go along with us in terms of, yeah, I bet you that's what it did look like in the first century. But once we start talking about what it might look like in the 21st century, then you get the pushback. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get, take your hands off my iPhone is what they say. You got it. And don't mess. <laughs> that's don't, single- is, that, is that it? Don't mess with me eating strawberries in January. Right. Yeah. Don't mess with ecological and economic arrangements that mm-hmm. I am comfortable with and benefit from. Yeah. The biggest pushback we've had so far on, on this book, book is our, our critique of cell phones. 
like yeah. overwhelmingly people just, you know, who are our students, uh, you know, they're reading this, they're reading this, they get to that, then they're like, oh, no, 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 you can <laughs> definitely. It went, off, went off the deep end there. I can't, I can't listen anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we yeah, regularly you, interface. You folks are Luddites. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you hate technology? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, we interface with leaders who are waking up to this increasing uneasiness to how uh, their tradition, their church feels like it is embedded in kind of a nationalistic, power-hungry culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that for many of the people we work with at Gravity Leadership, they they thought they thought they they thought they had more in common with their colleagues than they did because their colleagues see America as the kingdom of God and they see America as Rome. Mm-hmm. And they, and that's probably one of the biggest divisions among Christians we see today. I mean, you take Arminians and Calvinists, you take uh, people, mm-hmm. human stances on human sexuality, those things divide people. But you get somebody in a room who thinks that America is the kingdom of God or America mm-hmm. is Babylon and you will see fireworks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think I just want to commend what you're doing, the work you're doing locally with your interns making the jam, but also through this book. Uh, I think it's a field guide. It helps helps us hew out a robust imagination for how to live faithfully in a church that wants to um, subvert the gospel of whatever empire we're living in. Uh, mm-hmm. Pick your empire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. right. Uh, so, so thank you. We, we could talk, I mean, you guys go on and on about creation, about eco- mm-hmm. ecology, about, I mean, the way you handle Romans 13 is brilliant. The stuff you have to say about Romans 1 and the human sexuality debate, that's a whole different podcast in and of itself. Yep. Uh, just thank you for this book and thank you for your faithfulness and your work and your witness. Our and pleasure. You're welcome. You're most yeah. welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah. Good to be with you all. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy learning from this podcast, please be sure to show your support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. Be sure to share with your friends on social media too. And we would love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. You can join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.